Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Man, well, good morning, church. At this time, we're going to go ahead and uh, dismiss our three to five-year-olds. And so three to five-year-olds, if you can head off to your class. And for the rest of us, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 10, 21 through 24. And my name is Dwayne. I am one of the pastors here at the district. And so, again, just want to welcome you to the district. And, and also, again, just to say that it is good to be back with you. I was on uh, sabbatical for about three months. And, um, and last week was my first Sunday back. It was also the Sunday where we celebrated uh, seven years now as a church plant here in the city. And I'm looking forward to just this next season of ministry in the life of the district um, with you. And so we, we are excited to just continue uh, doing what, we're, what we do. And, and one of the main things that we do is we open God's Word and we let Him speak to us. And we let Him change us and transform us. And that's what impacts all of our lives. Um, and so let's do that together this morning. And as we're there in Luke 10, 21 through 24, again, I mentioned this last week. One of the things that, that I want to continue to kind of implement and do in the life of our church is, is not only just pray for you, but pray the Scripture over you. And so I want to start off with that before we dive into Luke 10. And so the Scripture that I'm going to pray over you is uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so... Uh, one of the things that, that we also do whenever we travel to be with some of our network churches, um, and, and a lot of times in kind of conference settings where you get a bunch of the pastors together, and we just learn and we kind of help one another and encourage one another, is when we pray for one another, we open our hands up and we just kind of have a posture of receiving what this prayer is. And so as we bow our heads, I'm going to ask that you just kind of open your hands up and that you just receive this prayer um, over your life this morning. And so let's pray together. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, now as we dive into Luke 10, and as we read that together, one of the things that i like us to start doing as well, or maybe continue doing, is to stand as we read the Word of God. Uh, because again, you might have come in here weary and broken and just heavy and whatever you're walking through in your life, and we stand on the Word of God. And so just kind of as a posture of doing that, I want us to stand as we read Luke 10, 21 through 24. And it says this, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are those, or blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This has been breathed out by God for our training in righteousness. So you may be seated. We're walking through the book of Luke for those who are maybe new here. Um, And we've been walking through it for, um, I believe this is the 53rd week walking through the book of Luke. Um, And so we're going to continue and probably have another 53 weeks as we walk through it. Because again, we don't want to just... Um, I, I went to a race last night at the Speedway. We don't want to do that through the book of Luke. Um, what we want to do is just meditate through the book of Luke. We want to study the book of Luke. We want to study the heart of God and what it is that he has teaching us and what he is uh, doing to mold us and to shape us. And so sometimes it's going to be three verses or four verses that we cover. Sometimes it might be bigger chunks, but, but for the most part, what we're praying the Lord does is just continues to get the word of God that he breathed out, ingrained into our hearts and our minds so that it changes and transforms us to become more like his son. And this is one of those things that we're going to see today is, is a transformation, how God uses his word, and what he does in order to make a transformation in someone's life. And so what he starts off with here is in that same hour. Well, what hour is he talking about here? Luke is making reference to what just happened and what just transpired. So this passage, what we're looking at today, is not another thought, um, but it's a continuation of what Jesus had just shared with them, uh, or what we covered last week. And so if you weren't here, uh, in a nutshell, last week we we looked at the 72 disciples that were sent out by Jesus. They were returning from that mission, and they were returning with joy, it says, from going and proclaiming the good news about Jesus. They were healing people. Um, They were calling them to believe in Jesus. And when they returned, they were filled, or really thrilled, that the demons primarily were subject to them in the ministry that they were engaging in. I mean, they, they went, ahead, went away maybe kind of fearful of it, but when they came back, they were like these Van Helsing demon hunters. I mean, they were just excited and thrilled that whatever they went out and did, the demons listened and were subject. But Jesus encouraged them not to rejoice in that, not to rejoice in that ministry activity that they were engaging in, but to rejoice and stay humble that their names were written in heaven. That ultimately what they should be rejoicing in is not what they're doing for Jesus, but the fact that Jesus has done something for them. That Jesus has ultimately saved them. Rejoice in your salvation, not rejoice in the activity in which Jesus is engaging you in. And that's exactly what happened. But then what this is now saying is not only did Jesus want them to rejoice in salvation, but here it says that Jesus is also rejoicing. That Jesus is rejoicing, which 
I always found it interesting when Jesus rejoices or marvels because it's only recorded twice in scriptures where Jesus rejoices or marvels. So it's, it's, it's not common. And I always wondered, well, then what causes this? Well, what happens that makes Jesus rejoice? Because again, Jesus knows what's going to happen when he shows up on the scene. He's God. Okay, he, he's never surprised like when we rejoice or when we marvel at something, it's because we, we might expect something good to happen, but but we're experiencing it for the first time. We we're seeing it in real time like we we don't know what's actually going to happen. And so we're surprised by it. And therefore, we also then rejoice in it. But Jesus here, he, he knows what's going to happen. I mean, it's kind of like thinking about um, a, a football game. You have a coach that calls a play, so you know what play you're going to run. You know what routes the players are going to run. You know who's going to get the ball. You have a goal of scoring. You believe you're going to score. And then ultimately you score, and everyone is excited because they scored. Like this is, in kind of that retrospect, Jesus is doing that. He, he knows the play that's going to be run. He knows who's going to get the ball. He knows what he's going to accomplish. And yet at the same time, he's marveling that it's happened. He's marveling that he's actually rejoicing in this moment as well. Jesus knew all of this before the foundation of the world, and yet here he is in the moment of time that he created, running the plays that his father called in and is in real time rejoicing and experiencing what he knew was going to happen. Jesus knew this already. He's experiencing the eternal plan in real time. John Piper says that, this is, that, this, um, that his rejoicing involved the full connectedness of the Trinity. Jesus is rejoicing, but it says that he's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. Piper takes that to mean that the Holy Spirit is filling him and moving him to rejoice. And then at the end of the verse, it describes the pleasure of the Father. The NIV translates it, Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. This is what you rejoiced to do. Now, that's just one component of the rejoicing is that Jesus is rejoicing over the saving work of God in writing their names in heaven. But but he elaborates a little bit on his rejoicing, what's causing him to rejoice. It's not just the fact that God is saving sinners, but it's also what he is revealing and also who he is saving. What he's revealing and who he's saving. Look closer at it. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, before I get to the the who Jesus is revealing these things to, I want to look at what these things are. Are that Jesus is talking about. And it's in the next verse. All things, verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So the things have come ultimately from the Father and have been given to Jesus on earth. And so what are they? What are these things? Here it is. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. So these things are not little things. They are not little things. It's not how to become a better Jew overnight. That's not what he's revealing and rejoicing over. It's not how to solve the Jewish-Roman political crisis going on in the 
first century. It's not how to become um, or, or to solve the Jewish-Gentile relations crisis during this time. These things that he's referencing are the subject of God's identity. He's revealing who God is. Who the Son's identity is and who the Father's identity is. Jesus is saying no one knows who the Son is except the Father. And you actually see this played out in a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. Here's what he says. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He then said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there were people in this time who heard about Jesus, maybe witnessed some of Jesus' miracles, maybe seen Jesus do some things, witnessed him perform some stuff, but yet they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know his true identity. But when he asked the disciples, Peter knew who the real Jesus was. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's it. That's the identity. Son of the living God is his identity and his role is the Christ. Which means it's not his last name. Christ is his role and it means anointed one. Why does identity matter? Well, if you're being called the son of the living God and you're being called the anointed one, which in the Old Testament, it's always in reference to who the king is. What Peter is saying ultimately is that Jesus, who some believe is just a prophet or a good teacher or maybe John the Baptist resurrected, like when he says that he is the Son of God, he's ascribing to him deity. And then at the same time, when he says that he is the anointed one, he's also ascribing to him earthly authority as their king. So he's the Son of God, he is God incarnate, and he is the awaited, anointed king of God's people. It's all wrapped up in this statement from Peter. Now, when Peter says this, Jesus doesn't award him 100% on the quiz and say, good job, Peter, you nailed it. No, he actually instead tells him that he's blessed to be able to know this. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't learn this in grade school. You didn't learn this anywhere else except my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. So follow me here. What the Father is doing is revealing the identity of His Son, Jesus who is the Christ, to people in order for Jesus to become their King, their Savior. In addition, Jesus is also revealing the person of the Father to those whom the Son chooses to reveal as it continues on to say in verse 22 of our text, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This is so that not only do we get Jesus as King, 
but we get God as Father. And we get the strength and power of the Holy Spirit in whom we rejoice and now live the surrendered Christian life under the rule of King Jesus. That, that's what's happening in the these things. And so when you read Scripture and you read stuff like He is revealing these things to us, it's important for us to dive into just what those, these things are because it's easy for us to just skip over that to maybe the context of how dare Him reveal this to maybe some and not others. We start getting caught up in that rather than the simple fact that He's actually revealing who God is and rejoicing in that. Now I said I was going to talk about the who because Jesus' rejoicing was also tied to who was receiving these things. Look back at verse 21. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus is rejoicing. Jesus is thankful that the Father has hidden these things from wise and understanding and has revealed them to these little children. Now, I don't get to decide who God saves. I don't get to decide who God saves. Despite the fact that I was at a funeral one time for um, a member of my family and my aunt came up to me one time and, and believed that I had the power to decide where people go, heaven or hell. And I think I let her continue thinking that for a little while, a um, little while longer. But I don't have that power, regardless of, of how it's all set up. And even when Jesus says in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That does not mean that we possess the power to play duck, duck, goose and choose who is in and who is out. We, we don't have that power. We are called to proclaim and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, living the perfect life on our behalf, dying a death we deserve, and resurrecting three days later to show that His work is finished, and that His sacrifice was accepted by God the Father for our sins to be paid. That's what we preach, and that is what we proclaim. We preach this message, and then it is up to God to reveal it to some and not others. It's, it's what He does. To us, it's a mystery. But one thing Jesus does point out in the passage is that God doesn't reveal these things to those who consider themselves to be wise and intelligent, but rather to those who are vulnerable like children. It does not mean that those who happen to be wise and intelligent can't be saved. If that were the case, the Apostle Paul would have not been saved. It also doesn't mean that everyone who is vulnerable will be saved either. John Piper goes on to say, the point of this is not that there are only certain classes of people who are chosen by God. The point is that God is free to choose the least likely candidates for His gift of grace. The least likely candidates for His gift of grace. It's as if God is choosing what would be countercultural to our way of understanding our way of how we structure life. He's revealing these things first to the person who is usually picked last. And to be honest, that provides us a bit of a strategy, if you will. Why not save all the world leaders first? Why not save the CEOs and the owners of businesses with hundreds and thousands of employees? 
Why not save presidents first? Why not save those who are influential over hundreds of thousands of people on social media? Would that not fast-track the gospel and spread the message that much quicker? Well, honestly, that just would not be Christian. It's not the way God has designed it. Because simply put, as 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let no one or let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It would not be the countercultural design of God if He just saved all the wise and intellectual and influential people to spread the message quicker and faster. What is Christian is that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what we would deem impossible. And made it possible by means of His wisdom, His righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that we can't boast in anything that we came up with or we were able to do in our eloquent speech, but only in the Lord and His will. Only in that. So that as we go out and we preach, we are in that moment kind of surprised as well that someone got saved. That's why Paul, who was wise and intellectual and influential, does not exercise his own abilities, but instead says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He was capable of doing that, but he chose not to. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the power of God. It is this strategy that Jesus rejoices in. He loves it. He, he loves that God is saving sinners. He loves that God is revealing the identity of Jesus to sinners so that, that they may see and that they may savor Jesus Christ as King and Savior. And Jesus loves that the way God implements this is by means of His power alone and not any earthly strategy. It, it's all God doing the work. And we are the recipients of this grace. And Jesus loves that. Jesus rejoices in that. And that's why Jesus then says in verse 23, as you look at our text, then turning to his disciples, he said privately to them, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings 
desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Again, don't rejoice that you can now cast out demons. Don't rejoice in your Christian mission and activity. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He, he's, he's nailing that one down here. Rejoice that you are one of the ones that see. And one of the ones that hear. And that you responded by faith in His message that came to you. Believing in whom you now see in here because you can see Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. The only appropriate response to God's saving work in your life is rejoicing. It's, it's gratitude. It's gratefulness. It's humility. It's boasting in Jesus alone and not anything that you think you contributed. Because we didn't contribute anything but the sin that was necessary to be paid for. That's the only thing we bring to the, to the table of salvation and ask God, how can we solve this problem? We bring our sin and He says, I, I've got it. I'm going to take care of the whole thing. And I'm going to redeem you with the work that I accomplish. And you're going to be a recipient of it. Blessed. Blessed. So you can't, you can't give more to earn salvation. You can't serve more to earn salvation. You can't live the American dream and earn salvation. You can't be a good person. There, there's no moral compass or moral authority in order to earn God. Like, look how good I am. God saved me. That's the wise and intelligent that's the wise and intellect. That's, that's those who think they have earned salvation out of their earthly abilities and earthly in intellect. And what God is saying is those who come to the table vulnerable like children saying, um, I don't know what to do. I, I can't feed myself. I, I can't work. I'm lost. I don't know where my parents are. Like, you start thinking like a child. Like, if, if we let our kids, I've got three boys that are eight, now eight, happy birthday, Ezra, today, um, eight, five, and three, if I let them go on their own for a week, I don't think I have children anymore. They will not survive. We come to the table of salvation in that mindset, like children, we will not survive if you don't do something, God. And Jesus gets excited. He gets excited in that posture because He basically tells us, watch this. Watch what I'm going to do for you. And this is going to bring great glory to God and the angels in heaven are going to be celebrating when Jesus scores that touchdown. They're celebrating. They're going wild. And that's what Jesus is rejoicing in in this moment. In this passage. Is that God is revealing Himself. A.K.A. our salvation. Through the identity of Jesus. And He's revealing it to those who are humble. 
and vulnerable to come to the table saying, we need you as our King and our Savior because we can't do this ourselves. And He saves us. He forgives us of our sins that kept us away from Him. I heard a story from Trevor Atwood, who's pastor of City Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, um, which is also the town in which I went to college. And this story, it's really two stories um, about two men. Both of these men are named John, so just so that you're not confused in here. The first John was born in 1725 in England. His mother died uh, just about two weeks before his seventh birthday. When he was about 11 years old, he began a life as a sailor with his father on a sailing ship. And when he turned 18, he was forced to go into the British Navy. Um, He was caught trying to abandon ship one day. So he was then stripped down to his waist, tied to the mast of the ship, and then was beaten with a hundred lashes by the crew. Just, I mean, just humiliated, humiliating beating. Following that, he then devised a plan to kill the captain and take over the ship. But before he could do that, um, the captain transferred him to a different ship that was heading towards Africa. This ship ended up being a slave trading ship. And so while he got to Africa, he then actually didn't see eye to eye with uh, that ship captain either. Devised a plan to try to take over it, but that captain ended up sailing, or, uh, selling him into slavery once he got into Africa. His father then sent out a rescue mission uh, to get him, got him, found him in Africa, brought him back to England, um, rescued him out of that. But he had then seen the financial profit of the slave industry and then engaged in it himself. And for the next nine years, lived a financially profitable life uh, in human trafficking, selling and trading slaves. Additionally, from some of the journals that he left, we know that he treated women poorly and that he outwardly rejected just any sort of moral authority in his own life. In short, John lived a hard life. John lived a very dark life and in a lot of ways lived a wasted life that we would probably look at. Now, I want to tell you a story of another John that actually lived around the same time as the first John, also in England. He married his childhood sweetheart named Mary. Shortly after their marriage, John and Mary adopted his two orphaned nieces. um, And eventually, he would go into the ministry and become an Anglican priest. He was well known for his just pastoral care and his work among the poor. Young people who were struggling with their faith uh, would seek out his advice. He would write letters back to them. They ended up collecting those letters and put them into a publication that you can still buy today um, that is going on and just continuing to encourage and give advice to people in their Christian faith and mission. Influential political leaders would come to this John uh, with their moral dilemmas seeking his wisdom. In 1788, he actually wrote a pamphlet decrying the evils of the slave trade Uh, and joined the efforts of William Wilberforce to abolish slavery altogether in England. The law to abolish slavery passed just before he died in 1807. uh, Just before he died in 1807. Now that, John, that's that's a beautiful story. That's a well-lived life. Um, A man who did what was right and fought for what was good right up unto his death. So that's two Johns. Two, two very different people. One, a life wasted, and one, a life well lived. 
But there's one more thing I want to tell you about these two Johns. He's the same John. He's the same person. The, the first John is very much the second John, even though the second John is very much not the first John. You see, it wasn't until while on one of the ships, a storm came threatening the sinking of the ship, and John Newton said that he prayed for God's mercy and experienced a spiritual encounter where Jesus revealed himself to John. Revealed himself to him. The storm ceased, and when he got back to land, he considered that the beginning of his conversion experience, his conversion to Christianity, knowing who he was and knowing who Jesus is, he etched these words on paper. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and fears, grace feared, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Trevor went on to ask a question. If you looked at John Newton when he was 30 years old, making a, a fortune off of human trafficking, using, using women for um, objects of his own pleasure, denying that he had any moral responsibility to anybody at all, he asked, could you have seen it? Could, could you have seen the second John? Could you have seen the transformation if all you saw was the first? I believe one of the reasons Jesus rejoices over his father's strategy is because it is the most radical and countercultural transformation this world can ever witness. And it's impossible for us to do it ourselves. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. It allows us to be able to see John Newton in the first half of his life and be able to have conversations and say, this is what Jesus can do. This is what Jesus can do. And again, that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. We're not going out and sharing the gospel and trying to help just counsel people on how to do their life better. But instead, I decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't matter your, your neighbors. It doesn't matter how good their lives are or how broken their lives are. If they don't know Jesus, they're broken. They're broken. And if Jesus has not saved them and forgiven them of their sins, they're lost and have not been found. They're blind and have not yet seen. And we have to share that message. We preach and proclaim Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the Christ. We proclaim that message and we proclaim Him crucified. Crucified. We don't preach and proclaim Jesus is my homeboy, Jesus is a good moral compass that you should follow and listen to. 
We preach Jesus Christ crucified for a specific reason because it's only by what He does at the cross that gives us any possible chance to be in relationship with Him and His Father. We, we, we don't get there if Jesus lives the perfect life on our behalf and then just goes back to heaven. We don't get Him if He doesn't pay for our sins at the cross. Because they have to be dealt with. That's the power. That's what made the difference in John Newton's life and also in your life. God revealed to you that you were a sinner, broken and unable to save yourself from His judgment and wrath. Don't believe me? And this is what Ephesians 2, 1-9 says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That, that's everyone who lives is that if they are not saved by Jesus who is revealing the Father to us and also the Father revealing Jesus to us. We are all verses 1-3 through three of Ephesians 2 until God steps in in verse 4 and it says, but God, not you, not your church, not your religion, not your acts of ministry, not your abilities, not your intellect, wisdom, any of those things, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. That's what Jesus is rejoicing in. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. We boast in Jesus. And that's what Jesus is also boasting in. Jesus isn't going back to heaven saying, look which ones I just saved. They're awesome. They're going to help our team out a lot. Like this, I'm training this guy. I'm sending him to the other team. I'm going to go with this quarterback. Like Jesus isn't doing that. Jesus is saying, and I'm sorry, but this is the category you're in if you believe in Jesus. He's saying, look how weak they are. Look how sinful these ones are. Look how damned they are. But I love them. And I'm going to do a work. And I'm going to save them. And I'm going to take them from sinner to saint. And they're going to boast in us because we're all they have. We are all they have. Jesus gets excited about that. And in return, that's what we get excited about. That's what we 
get excited about. Christ did all of it. And that's why Romans 5, 8, by God, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And that's why at the end of every message that we preach and proclaim, we come to the table of him breaking his body and shedding his blood because we know that when we come to this table, there's nothing that we can bring to it. We preach in a way for you not to walk away saying, let me tighten up my tie. Let me clean myself up. Let me do better. What we do is when we come to the table, we're continuing to acknowledge He does all the work and we are just participants. We, we engage in it. We rejoice in what work He is doing. Now, yes, there is a combination of a responsibility once you become a believer where like if I just sit back and never read the Word of God, it's going to be really hard to grow in my relationship with Jesus. If I don't communicate with Him in prayer, it's going to be really hard to abide in Jesus in a relationship. But He has done all of the work to save you that then fuels you for your Christian life and ministry. That's why we come to the table is because we know that there is Christian life and ministry. There is Christian life and mission that He calls us to participate in and to engage in. There is work for us to do. If you keep reading the Ephesians 2, it goes on to say that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So when He saved you, He made you a new creation. And you as a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, you as a new creation, have, you have work to do. The fuel that keeps fueling our work is coming back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If it was the cross of Christ that saved us, it's the cross of Christ that continues to sustain us and empower us for the ministry that we engage in every single day. Every single day. And so that's why we end every, or every service coming to the Lord's Supper, coming to communion, so that when we get to the table, we're continuing to proclaim the same thing. It was not me that did any of this. I'm not boasting in myself, but I'm remembering I'm looking back. I'm remembering all that Jesus did for me in his life and his death and his resurrection. He broke his body and he shed his blood by getting tortured, beaten, and nailed to a wooden cross. Publicly humiliated. And in that place, he forgave me of my sins because he took my sins and placed them on the cross. He became my sin so that I might become his righteousness 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And then his resurrection three days later is the receipt. It's the confirmation. You know, when you go online and you pay a bill, and they receive a confirmation code back. The resurrection is his confirmation from God that God's wrath is satisfied. Nothing left to pay. Nothing left to pay. And because he rose Jesus from the dead... Jesus having power over death while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. No longer. We are now alive in Christ. Resurrected with Him because our sins have been paid for. This is everything that we remember and hold on to by faith. And we rejoice in 
And so let us rejoice in this and remember this by breaking bread together. And so I'm going to ask you to stand, if you will. Please stand. For those who, um, for those who believe this truth, for those who live under the banner of Jesus saving them, coming to the table like a child vulnerable, uh, there's nothing that I can do to earn this. There's nothing that I can do to keep this. There's nothing that I can do. But Jesus has done it all for me. For those who live under that and believe that, we invite you to partake of communion, remembering all of the work of Jesus. And let it be the fuel that continues to empower you for a Christian life and mission. So when you wake up tomorrow and you're like, man, I really haven't been reading God's word and, and being able to have that opportunity for him to communicate with me like I should. Or I haven't talked to him. I haven't prayed. I haven't spent time with him like I should. When we start having those kind of inner dialogue and wrestling going on, let's just remember, man, you know what? That feeling that I have of that shame and that guilt, Jesus paid for that on the cross. So I don't need to let the enemy belittle this new creation that he's already done a work in. But rather, let it be an invitation and an opportunity for me to not just complain about myself and navel gaze, but look up to heaven and say, God, I want to hear from you. So let me open your word and dive in. God, I want to communicate with you. I want to pray to you. And I don't think there's any magic number of how often I pray or how long I pray, but I just desire to pray. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. And Jesus rejoices in that. He rejoices in that. And so let this be the fuel that continues to drive our spirituality as we engage with Him in relationship. So come grab the elements, come back to your seats, and we will partake together.